0: You got two ways you can make money with this business. One, it's going to be a business and you can make money that way. Or you keep it a hobby. And I don't mean that in a negative way. There's a lot of ways to make a lot of money with something as a hobby.
1: You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Lou Oswald, the owner of Oswald Building Services, partner of Easy Peasy Cleaning. Partner of the Cleaning Agency and Managing Partner of Blaze Management Services. Lou, thanks for coming on the show. And how do you describe your business to people who don't know what you do?
0: So all the businesses are related to the cleaning industry, uh, either from a commercial or residential. Oswald Building Services is a commercial cleaning company where we provide services five days a week. Most of the... Uh, Contracts are in Center City, Philadelphia, and the surrounding suburbs. Cleaning agency, another commercial business that we started end of last year in response to pandemic the last few years with the shrinking commercial office market and the decreasing need for commercial clean services. Uh, easy peasy cleaning residential company in Chester County, Pennsylvania that was started by Samantha Jackson Uh, and I got involved with Samantha probably I guess June 2018 and uh, that's been a great run as well and it's been a great hedge against the shrinking commercial market in that with the remote work a lot of people who traditionally would do residential cleaning as a luxury now that they're working from home they don't want to clean their house since they're there all week, so really don't care what I'm cleaning for you, as long as it's in a building or a house or church, school, we cover it all.
1: Okay, good. So what did you originally go to school for?
0: Originally, I uh, went to school for accounting and criminal justice. I uh, thought I was going to go to law school, got accepted to law school, um, Actually worked out of college at first at uh, one of the big six accounting firms, which you guys wouldn't remember back then, but there was a Cooper's and was one of them. And uh, worked in their audit department, quickly realized I did not want to be in that world. Uh, Applied to law school, got into law school. Uh, But at the time, uh, wanted to take a break from school and went and worked for my father for a year.
2: So what was it about that industry that made you decide you didn't want to work there, you'd, you'd rather do something else?
0: With the audit, I, I, I'm i a very process-driven person, and I actually do like numbers. I'm not crazy about math, but I try to tell people all the time, especially that don't like math in school. It, it's Math in school is not what it's going to be like in business, but you do know, need to know your numbers in business. Uh, as far as the experience in the audit department, it was a very isolated world um you're 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 auditing the uh financial statements of companies and you're doing it basically yourself the whole time and most of the people you were working with um they weren't crazy about working with you (laughs) because you're there trying to find if there's any issues or problems or anything like that uh just make sure everybody's in compliance uh and I just, I didn't want to do something that was that isolated for the rest of my life. Not that I knew much about anything at the time, but that's at least what was in my head.
2: And instead you went to work with your father? What was when Went to work with my he father.
0: Doing? He was in the commercial cleaning industry. He uh, he had the dry cleaning plant here in Marchwood. He was the first tenant actually in Marchwood Shopping Center. And for extra money, he was started cleaning carpets in the neighborhood and that eventually turned into a commercial cleaning business for him. So when I wanted to take a break from school before going to law school, I, would, I have four younger siblings and I was always uh, pretty fascinated about how he was able to use cleaning to pay for raising a family and pay for education and stuff. So I wanted to do that for the, originally the thought was do it for the one year when I was taking a break and that's how I wound up working for my father and uh getting exposed to the commercial cleaning industry
1: how long did you work with him
0: i worked with him until the company was sold in 2006 i want to say could be wrong on that um so i was probably there for almost 14 years uh he grew that company in a to a large regional company uh, had about 1,600 employees at the time when it was sold, sold to a large national company called ABM. And when it was sold, because of my name, I had a a two-year non-compete. So I had to get out of the industry. And at that time went and worked for the brother of a guy I went to high school with who had a, um, he had a software development company, which I knew nothing about but they were looking for somebody who had experience selling to stadiums. They had just finished creating the software for the diamond club for the Phillies, which kept track of money on your ticket. And NASCAR was interested in that software. The only experience I had with stadiums was I had just done the construction clean for Citizens bank park and Lincoln financial field, uh, So I spent the next couple of years doing my non-compete going to NASCAR races around the country and showcasing their software.
2: Was there ever a discussion of you taking over your father's business instead of selling it?
0: No, and that was was a very clear conversation, black and white. Um, At the time, uh, you know, the reality is I was in no way, shape or form even remotely capable of taking over that company, let alone approaching that with him. It certainly was uh, a scary time for me, the time when he sold. um, But he had conversations with me about that, you know, the whole point. When he started that business, it was not something that he was did because he was excited and his dream was to become a commercial cleaner. But uh he did it to pay for his you know his family and take care of stuff and he'd worked very hard and he and my mom had agreed at some point in time if he could get out he would get out and he did um he had brought two partners into that business um which wound up in the long run teaching me a lot uh but the best lesson i got from him probably was that i he sold that business Um, and that I did not um, stay with that business and that he didn't hold on to it longer. In reality, the only way I was going to learn was to kind of just be out on my own. Not that I thought I was going to stay in that industry, but...
1: What was your role when you were working for him?
0: I had a division that I ran called Special Services Division, which we did fire and water remediation, stone care, carpet care, uh, all the... Types of services, window cleaning that was not in the base contract of coming in on a nightly basis to pull the trash, vacuum, and that kind of stuff. And that was a pretty neat uh, background for the cleaning industry uh, because we basically were 24-7. Back then you had pagers. So if anybody called the hotline, you get paged and you have to dispatch a crew. So it taught me a lot from managing uh service personnel to creating uh a call center type environment someone not so much a call center but a emergency response center for when customers needed things and uh it puts you in a position that you always had to be ready for anything because you never knew what was on the other side of the call for an emergency
1: so was it your dad's plan to scale to that size? Like, did he know like i want to scale to this size and sell it or was it kind of just It grew and he...
0: His background was economics. Um, He went to Vietnam. When he came back, he was actually a teacher in the Philadelphia uh, school system. And now he was a salesman. He was a uh, gypsum national, I think it was at the time, selling uh, drywall. And he was successful as a salesman, and at the time, he also got involved with commodities trading. So he was, he was more of a financial guy than he was a service industry guy. Um, but he had heard about this uh shopping center that back then was Bernie Hankin was going to be building in Marchwood. And he thought it'd be a good investment to put a dry cleaning plant in there. To, this area was growing. It was a lot different than than it is now. And uh he did that and it started to take off a little bit and he brought his brother in at the time it was in the area. So, uh, he, he, when he started cleaning the carpets and the first commercial contract he had was cleaning the Exton mall at midnight, they used to have a play area and he'd go in and vacuum the carpets and wipe down these big animals and a little maze that they had there. Um, And he just was a grinder. He just, at the time, the industry was very different. The commercial cleaning industry was made up of only part-time workers. And it was mostly men and women who were, their families were growing. So they would take a part-time job at night to add for groceries or things like that. So he quickly realized that there was no real business people in the cleaning industry. And then he quickly realized that the people that you talk to during the day to tell him you wanted to clean their building weren't going to be there at night, so he would just go out and tell them, "Oh yeah, I got a hundred employees and we do all these places." And he knew, and then he would come back that night and clean their space. And it, I mean, he he's he's got a pretty good history and track record in the industry now. It was very different back then, so that was the early seventies um, when he started that. and then in the eighties it just Exploded in the city. And he was doing, he cleaned 75% of commercial real estate in Center City, Philadelphia in the 80s on a nightly basis. Wow. But so he he didn't plan it that way, build it up. Uh, but at the end, I mentioned those partners earlier that taught me a lot later. Those guys were non-entrepreneurs. And he was driven by the notion of building something, creating something, trying to grow it. And when it got to that point, that group wasn't, I mean, a lot of people were in a very secure situation and things were going pretty well and they were not, um, their focus was not on building and creating. So that was it. I mean, he, he had zero interest in it anymore and he was getting older and had other interests in life so that's how that ended it was not it was not a very sexy story or anything like that or a great business story or inspirational story the guy just was uh he was a tremendously hard worker and he did whatever he he needed to do
2: so um you're working at this other business what was the catalyst do you remember that uh led you to launch your own business
0: I would, nothing, again, nothing inspirational. Uh, I I, I enjoyed what I was doing for the software development company. I was very naive and ignorant at the time. The guy who owned that company and that company's still in business, that great guy, Mike Schrader, him and his brother really run that company and built that company. But I did know enough that if you're not going to be a part of something, and especially if you're working in a family business, it's probably not going to be a great long-term thing for you. So understanding that my non-compete ending on the commercial stuff, um, I just, I, I wanted to do something for myself. I wanted to work for myself. Uh, naively looking back on it now. Um, So my brother had a body shop in Westchester at the time. And I knew I wasn't going to become part of this software development company. And I had no business becoming part of it. I was VP of their sales department, but I had no software development background or anything like that. So my I just, but I needed to get out. So I bought a uh, minivan from my brother in Westchester at 156,000 miles on it. I'll never forget. And I just drove around Westchester at any construction site and asked if they needed it. The space cleaned up at the end of the day. And that was, that was the unglamorous catalyst for (laughs) starting off in business.
1: Yeah. So is that when you actually incorporated and like, how did you?
0: Yeah, I did that for about two years. Um, and part of it was just i had a background in special sir or in uh post construction that was under our uh, special services division so i kind of felt pretty comfortable talking with gc's and superintendents and uh realizing focus on the cleaning was not something that they ever really wanted to pay attention so it, didn't bother me to walk onto a site and just ask who the GC was and see if they wanted cleaned up because a lot of times they would use laborers who didn't want to do the work anyway. Um, I did that for two years. What I realized though was at the time was when you're doing one-off jobs, what we call one-off jobs like that, you, you're constantly looking to replace that revenue stream, I knew I wanted to get to contract work where most of the contracts are year long contracts and you get paid monthly. And I knew I'd have to get to that in order to hire other people to do the cleaning and be able to grow it. So that, I did that for two years before I got my first nightly cleaning contract. It was, if you remember back then, the dates and stuff, 2006 and 2008, it's funny going through what we're going through now. That was Armageddon, again, in the industry, and in the commercial real estate absolutely went through the floor. So the timing could not have been worse, which is why it took so long to to get that thing off the ground. Um, so, I'd, I mean, I did everything... Um, from a legal standpoint and creation of the LLC and everything like that at the time, just because I was comfortable with doing it at the, at the time, not cause I thought it would turn into anything, but it's just, that's just the way I did it.
2: So talking about the, the great recession of 2008, mm-hmm. what steps did you take to survive during that environment? When, <laughs> cry <when> you...
0: <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, uh, my wife was not happy. Um, we have, we only have one child, but he was probably six at the time. I wasn't making any money. Um, but I was getting some offers from other businesses in the area for, for what would have been a very good salary at the time. But I, I've talked about it with some other people. I, I think when you're wanting to do something on your own you're either wired that way or you're not it's hard to get people to understand it if you're wired for it that i'm sitting there with my wife and her son i can't make any ends meet and i had opportunities where i could go get a salary and take care of the responsibilities i need to it didn't matter and it was a source of friction for many years because I just wasn't wired to go the notion of the security of being able to pay the mortgage and and pay groceries and all that stuff naively it didn't matter to me i really didn't care because i knew i didn't want to do that so my wife after many many years just kind of gave up fighting that fight cuz that's why i said you're just you're wired that way or not So I didn't really care at the time that the landscape was not productive for the industry that I was in. I just looked at it and said, you made this choice. You're gonna gonna see it to the end, whatever that end's gonna be, whether it's you don't get any business and that will tell you what the end is or if it turns into something great. But I naively at the time, which was probably helpful, I didn't have expectations of what I was trying to do. I just was going to do it and let the chips fall where they may. So that mindset probably helped for me personally. Did nothing for the people that were around me that I was responsible for. Now that that did not ingratiate me in their mind of being responsible and providing.
1: <clears throat> yeah, we kind of we started in two thousand nine, so we mm-hmm. kind of started our business, and then yeah. the also the horrible time, and it was just. That's what we wanted to, we were the same way it's like this is what we're going to do we're just going to grind straight yeah. through till it starts working. you know just adjust things did you like put together a strategy or anything
0: to- i did you know it's funny looking and i have it still i actually had a business plan and a marketing plan and i uh a buddy of mine mark brady at the time him and his brother had a company brady financial and i worked with them i wound up couldn't afford their bill which at the time really pissed me off how Victor Bill was. Um, but I had a pretty sophisticated business plan and I had a plan of how I was going to roll right through the Philadelphia suburbs in Center City, Philadelphia. And the execution of that business plan was, was not effective. But looking back, the going through the exercise of putting together the plan was invaluable, without question. I mean, it was a beautiful plan. (laughs) It was (laughs) probably also a very unrealistic plan, but it gave me something to focus on. Um, I just couldn't, in a million years, wouldn't have been able to execute it. What
2: kind of steps were in the plan?
0: The thought at the time was to trade on... Going back to HGO is the name of the my father's business. Um, one of the one of the things that made us a very effective company was very effective managers. And that's something that sticks with me to this day. You're you're only gonna be as good as your frontline supervision no matter what you guys ever sit and figure out, if the people you have in the field can't execute it, it doesn't matter. So the thought was we we were recognized, HGO was recognized for its management talent. So I knew um, after HGO had sold, the managers who were working for ABM and some of the other competitors, no one that ever worked for HGO, they, they did not like where they wound up working. So the thought was, I have access to that pool of talent. I just got to get the the accounts. And then the biggest selling point, back in the 90s for for high rises, the property managers, they they cared a lot more about who was gonna be the account manager for the cleaning company. Because they knew that without a good account manager, the cleaning contract was going to be a disaster. So my pitch was going to be going down and was to the high-risers and say, hey, listen, I'm coming back into the market. Your manager who's working for my competitive here now will work for me. I get the contract, they're going to work for me. Um, And a lot of the people thought it was great. What I a lot of things I was super naive about, um, which was also a blessing, but... Um the guys in operation and the girls in operations were not the same people that were in the purchasing departments and in the boardrooms. And that's where the decisions are made financially. So I could find an audience that wanted to work with me and bought into the notion of the team I went, But I wasn't getting in front of the people in the purchasing department. And these are not insignificant sized contracts and the cost of them are really big. And there's a lot of other factors I didn't realize at the time, like payment terms. In our industry, especially in in the high-rise buildings, you're actually a line of credit for the building owners because of how expensive, besides taxes and insurance, believe it or not, the janitorial contracts, the largest expense for a facility. So a lot of these contracts are seven-figure contracts, and these guys haven't paid in three months. So even when they wanted to the change, they couldn't afford to get hold with their existing contractor in order to make a change. So that was some one, one of the many, many things I was very naive about, that there was no way of getting over that. So I spent a couple of years banging on doors and thousands of letters and all the traditional stuff you would do. And it was basically probably true to three years of ferocious rejection, which again, probably was in the long run the best thing that could have happened. It was didn't feel that way at the time and it certainly caused a lot of problems in my life, a lot of problems, a lot. I got into an awful lot of financial trouble. One of the things that I thought was great at the time but turned out to be a problem was, and you guys might experience it a little bit too, back then the banks were very eager to lend money there was mortgages they were giving out these no doc loans on mortgages you didn't have to if you were if you said you were self-employed you didn't have to prove any type of income you start a business they'll give you a line of credit i did all that stuff what i did horribly though is i took the money i borrowed to fund the business for paying bills and paying myself and paying people that but it wasn't money that was seed money that was growing the business i was using it for cash flow which was i didn't realize at the time that's what i was doing but all i did was was create a ton of debt and i didn't have enough business to sustain the cash that i was burning through for buying equipment and supplies and paying people and all that kind of stuff um and then that the banks things got uglier and uh they started coming and calling the notes and which I didn't understand any of that at the time. Like I'll never forget getting the one call and they said, We're calling the line of credit. I said, I get it. I think I understand what that means, but what does that mean? And exactly. And he goes, That means we want you to write a check for what your line of credit is right now. And that was one of those moments where you realize like, this is, there's no idea to know where this is going to go. And I said to the guy, I said, I, I might as well just be very honest with you. Because why well, I appreciate that since you owe us a lot of money. And I said, I have no ability whatsoever to pay this money back. And I have no idea what to even make up to tell you is how I'm going to do it. And the guy fortunately for me was a great guy. He he He's like, Laughed. He goes, well, clearly we don't want you to shut your business down and not pay us back. So we're going to figure it out one way or another. And and I never met the guy, I never knew who he was, but that was a big point early on that was helpful.
2: So calling the line of credit, that sounds like a departure from the normal monthly payments on a yep. loan. Mm-hmm. Um, is that in every contract for a line of credit?
0: Uh... I don't know if it's in every contract, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways of fun things these days. Um, but at the time, basically when you well, at least when I was doing, you're doing a line of credit would be, it could be something that we, re, that renews annually, or it could have like a 15 year term. And then if there's 15 years, it turns into a note, or it could be something where you just tap it and then you make it you have an agreement in it that says you got to get it back to zero by a certain time. And then it just stays as like a revolving line of credit.
2: So something to watch out for if you're thinking about a line of credit is paying attention to those terms.
0: Sure. I I mean, I've learned a lot um, recently. A guy who's, who you guys know, actually, Glenn Marshall from First Resource Bank, I came across through a relationship on the board at Exton Chamber. Um, And I had shared a lot of my history and aversion to debt because of how much trouble I got into with debt. I mean, that one line of credit was just one of the things that was a disaster. Um, But I got out of all of it. I got fortunate Oswald Building Services, someone who's high rises, I finally did break through. And I spent a lot of time crazy just throwing every penny at the debt I had because I wanted to get back to zero. I, I hated it, I hated it, it was, I, anybody out there. The worst thing you can do is is put yourself in, in a bad debt situation. Well, I was totally out of debt wanted to continue to grow the businesses. And I came across through another relationship meeting this Glenn Marshall from First Resource Bank. And we had breakfast and I told him about my aversion and everything. And he's been great, he's a, he's a mentor to me now. He, he explained to me, Lou, a lot of guys in your situation did that. When you started your businesses, you used your, everything you put at risk was personal. Everything, you know, you had the personal guarantees, you were putting your house on the line, all that kind of stuff. And guys like you that survive that, because most guys don't. I mean, the reality is for every 10 businesses that start today, nine will fail within the first two years. And along with that, there's people that are in personal financial difficulties for many years after that, even though the businesses are gone. He said, so the the sensitivity and the, and the fear of going into debt is, is legitimate. What he taught me though, is if you're going to really consider yourself a businessman and want to keep with this, you got to learn that it's going to take capital to keep growing because you're going to need to grow in different ways than you're accustomed to. And he said, you need to learn how to use other people's funding like the bank to help that growth. And he's helped me to do a lot of that stuff to this day now and not have everything personally at, at risk and things like that. So I'm in a lot of, uh, appreciate that very much.
1: Yeah, so when what was like the turning point where you started closing those big contracts and starting to climb out of that debt?
0: Without question, um, it would be uh, Blue Cross. Uh, Blue Cross's headquarters, downtown Center City, Philadelphia. Um, that was one of our uh, janitorial contracts where we had a lot of special services work as well. And uh, so I'd known the facilities department there pretty well. And a few years after I started the business, they came in and and asked me to bid on the the building and I I knew that if I got the contract and failed that was gonna be the end of the business I would be over Um, so at the time a healthy fear told me to tell them as much as I would love to and as much as I knew the numbers inside and out so bidding it was not gonna be an issue um cash flow was gonna be an issue but knowing the numbers wasn't so i i said i i don't want to bid it they came back two years later asked me if i would be interested in doing it and still was more concerned about failing there and ruining everything turned it down and about two years later they said okay we don't want you to bid it but we want you to hire you as a consultant to Tell us what we need to do because it's we've just been having the same issues for years. So I thought about it and I sent them this goofy quote at the time. I said, here's what I want an hour for it. And here's how many hours I think this can. And they're like, no problem. Well, it was crazy. It was my first experience with taking something. I said, here's what I'd love to get paid. I doubled that. And then I doubled it again. And that's what I gave to them. And they were willing to pay that at the time. To me, I thought it was an extraordinary large amount of money. Looking back on that, it really wasn't. But I didn't know how to how to measure my self-worth in a situation. It just happened to be that they needed stuff I understood in a very small situation. So the cost to them was nothing. Um, that ultimately, that consulting contract Ultimately turned into taking over the the at there, and that's a forty five uh, story building downtown, million square feet, and uh, Union Center City, Philadelphia, is all Union stuff. So I had a background in dealing with the Union and stuff, and they knew that. Um, and there were some other things that would that I had a background in that would be helpful. But so once I had that, um, that gave me a lot of confidence when I was in other arenas pitching services to say listen if blue cross can trust us with their building you know kind of felt like that that was that helped us give us more credibility and legitimacy than anything else
1: so how many people did you have working for you like before blue cross and did you have to instantly kind of exponentially scale when you got that contract you
0: did i did um now in the city with the it being a union situation, uh, the labor stays with the building, so when you change contracts, if you own a building in Center City, and you say, I don't like the cleaning anymore, I want a different contractor to come in, the only thing that's allowed to change is management. You have to use all the same cleaners. It's kind of a little bit of a dysfunctional environment downtown. Um, which prevents a lot of competition coming in. There's there's not much of any competition in Center City Philadelphia. Hasn't been forever. Couple things that prevent it. You have a huge capital investment. The amount of money it takes to to just to buy the equipment to put into these buildings to clean them, and you're going to be doing work for well. Depends on the term situation, but for a for for me, a month, two months before you get paid, you're putting six figures of capital outlay, and you're paying the employees to clean it before you're getting paid. That that's a big barrier to entry for most cleaning guys. Um, I got very favorable terms. Uh, like I said, it, it the Blue Cross was just such a game changer. So. To your question about having to scale the labor, I had to use the labor that was there. So it wasn't like I had to go out and find that labor, especially compared to what things are like now today, where there's no labor anywhere. One thing the union does make it easier for you is the labor's already in place in the city.
1: How, how does that work if <laughs> you pretty much just become the manager of that existing team? Mm -hmm. do you adjust what they're getting paid is it a set rate like how does that management shift
0: work? so you have a a cba collective bargain agreement that if you're a contractor you have to be what they call signatory to now in philadelphia it's a little different the the union that covers the janitorial cleaners is seiu and they actually are the SEIU is contracted with a group called Bowler that represents all the building owners in Center City, Philadelphia. And what happens is the buildings are signatory to SEIU. So what that means is the owners say any trades, anybody, any kind of um, vendor work that comes in a building, we agree they have to be part of a union. So the the janitorial company or any of the vendors It's not like you hear with the uh, laborers or the bricklayers or the painters or anything where the contractor itself is either a union shop or a non-union shop. You just have to agree to become signatory to that SEIU collective bargaining agreement and abide by it if you operate in a building in the city. So the labor stays there and the collective bargaining agreement dictates all the compensation for those employees. And their five-year terms, this current CBA expires in November, it's gonna be an absolute nightmare because of what happened with COVID and the cleaning industry. So you take over the contract, you have to pay everybody exactly what they're currently getting paid, their vacation entitlement, their pension plans, all that. Basically what you're selling is that you're gonna manage those bodies better than the other contractor did. And then the only other thing you're really negotiating in the difference in price is what's considered your management fee, which is basically your profit margin on the job. It's gotten so bad in Center City, Philadelphia that most of the contractors, and there's only three or four at this point, they'll bid a contract, and they're large seven-figure contracts, at a 1% profit margin which can be a couple injuries, a couple slip and falls, a couple um, floors going vacant, to now you're actually in the red and you're losing money every month cleaning that building. So it's a very precarious position right now in Center City.
1: What's driving people to underbid like that? Is it just they're desperate for anything?
0: So the industry the commercial clean industry and specifically the high rise commercial clean industry, is, is going through tremendous change over the last 15 years and the biggest drivers of change in that has been the insurance industry the insurance costs for workmen's comp and general liability in the janitorial business is going through the roof it's going through the roof for a lot of industries but specifically for janitorial uh, the cost for your workman's company general liability are through the roof. So that disqualifies a lot of people from either, even getting the, the the appropriate insurances to operate in a high rise situation. The other thing has been the model in Philadelphia was, it was a very parochial area and businesses like to do businesses with other local companies and locally owned businesses. And most of the, real estate in the seventies and eighties in Philadelphia were owned by people and investors in Philadelphia. That's no longer the case. There's there's very few Philadelphia owned buildings. So the money's all national and the contracts are now all negotiated nationally. So there's been that loss of the local regional relationships for generating the business. Uh, that's going to continue to go down that road and you're going to have people want to deal with one clean company that can clean their buildings in california, new york, la, chicago. They don't want to deal with local regional people anymore. So, that's been that's been the biggest change and that's going to continue. You'll no longer I'm the only last and I'm very tiny. I'm the only privately held clean company operating center city of Philadelphia. They're all publicly owned uh national companies now. It's crazy. Mm. Hmm.
1: Um yeah, so um as things were growing, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how you started setting up your like obviously so you're just kind of managing the contract. How did you set up your business structure to effectively manage that and work within all those regulations? Like what were kind of some of the systems you put in place to run that
0: so i uh, i'm a big proponent of um professional services you need uh an accountant you need a lawyer um for me personally i came from the operations side which is very helpful for me because cleaning is a very operationally driven business the sales side there are annual contracts that the opportunities only come up every few years. So it's not a sales intensive environment. It's a very operationally intensive environment. I have a background in accounting, which by far was in the cleaning business for me, the best background I could have had. Besides the experience of being in the cleaning industry, the accounting put me in a position that most people, when they start their own business, they say, I don't want, I'm not a numbers person. I don't want to be on that side of it. So they'll surrender managing that aspect of their business, which then puts them in position. They don't truly understand the numbers side of their business. And so I I was comfortable wearing different hats because I was very comfortable wearing the bookkeeping hat and the billing hat and the collections hat. That saved me. I I was a one-man show until 2014, 2015. Um, but I had pretty disciplined getting billing out on time, not having money on the street. And the, another aspect was if you have money on the street, you, you, again, your cash flow is going to get crushed. You're going to wind up not being able to pay your bills. You're going to have to borrow money from somewhere. So I was fortunate enough that I got to see the inner workings of a company that was a in the 80s, a 30, 40 million dollar company and see all how that goes and see how disciplined you had to, to be. And I had that mindset when it was just me and a couple people cleaning, even though it was just a couple people cleaning, I took it very seriously and and was very disciplined about administrative procedures, bookkeeping um, procedures. and I worked during the day trying to find business, and then I was out at all the accounts every night getting in front of I didn't have supervision, so I had to be the supervisor for the for the cruise at night.
2: So, from an accounting perspective, what are specifically those numbers that a business owner needs to know in order to manage that cash flow?
0: First, thing, uh, any you need to have accounting software. As silly a statement as that sounds, so many people don't. Um, they they will have an accountant, which is another crazy thing to me. They'll pay an accountant for bookkeeping functions. And that's just from a, from a cost standpoint, you're, you're, you're paying a lot for something that, that it's, it's going to create a uh, cost ratio that's too high. So from the accounting principles side of it, what you need to put in place is very quickly, I don't care if you only bill out $1 a month, you need to be looking at your p all the time, you have to know your expenses. You have to know how to price stuff. You gotta know, for us, labor is by far the number one cost. But you also have to know your materials costs, you have to know your insurance costs. And all of those factors have to be taken into consideration whenever you're pricing anything. Um, If you don't price things to be profitable, I'm not a big believer in oh, if we get this, that will lead to something else. If you get this, and it doesn't make money, and it doesn't lead to something else, you're just going faster in the wrong direction. Um, but I would say, you know, with clean agency and easy peasy and please, ironically, the one thing we spend the most time doing now none of them would have ever wanted to do before, which is we have weekly sales meetings for every business. We have monthly P&L meetings for every, and even though these individuals don't have the background in accounting, I told them, if you don't understand these numbers, you're not in business, plain and simple, because you can't manage the accountants. You're not going to be able to manage your lawyer. I'm a big proponent of you, you You pay money to an accountant that give you advice. You pay money to the lawyer to give you advice. You pay money to an IT person to give you advice. But they have to be able to give you advice in such a way you can understand it in terms of your own business so you can make a decision. The owner of the business has to be willing to make all the decisions. But they also have to be willing to take input and advice from the people around them that know their specific topic better than them. The mistake I see other people make though is they then relinquish the decision-making to that individual. They'll let the lawyer make the decision or they'll let the accountant make the decision or they'll let the IT person who needs to help you create your infrastructure, but if it doesn't, support what your business agenda is. It doesn't matter. The, the, I've always said the accountant hasn't built a cleaning company. They they have no business making any of the decisions for you. But I've been with other people. They say, well, I'm not, I don't know the numbers. I gotta let the accountant make the decision. It's not the accountant's company. And the accountant's not gonna be held responsible if that decision doesn't go well. So, I mean, it's pretty cliche. You gotta surround yourself with people and if you're somebody like me, it's a little easy. Everybody's smarter than you. I, I tell everybody, feel comfortable being the dumbest person in the room. Because if you feel like you're the dumbest person in the room, most likely you're going to listen pretty intently to the people that are there. If you think you're smarter than them, and you're not going to pay attention and listen to them because you think you know more than them, one, they're going to pick up on, they're going to feel like they're wasting their time talking to you and eventually they're not going to want to give any suggestions because they're going to say that the guy thinks he's smart enough so why would we give him any suggestions whatsoever he never never executes anything we talk to him about or anything like that so at the same time you got to feel like you're the dumbest person in the room just take the advice but you have to make the decision you got and you got to take ownership of it and if it doesn't work you don't blame the person that gave you the advice, you go back and you say, well, I need more advice because I we tr- executed and it failed. So you don't blame that person. You say, all right, now what do we try? But I, I, I see a lot of people would rather relinquish it and say to the accountant or the lawyer, or the, tell me what I should do.
2: Yeah, that, I was just going to say, that's one thing we've been working on in our business right now. Um, because obviously we got into the business because we love making videos. We love mm-hmm. helping people with marketing. But the accounting side, we're finding that in order to really know the numbers on each project, we're having to uh, account for time. Mm-hmm. You know, how much time did our editors spend on a specific project, and how does, and when we're paying out, you know, how does that affect the profit and loss of that business? It's been, it's been kind of eye opening to realize that that is the next step of growth for us uh, to dig into the accounting side. Uh, but once your eyes are open to that, you see how important it is. If you're going to scale at any rate, you have to know that. For sure. On every project.
1: Yeah. um, So where was Oswald out when you started thinking about bringing Easy Peasy, like moving into a second business situation?
0: I wasn't thinking of doing it at the time. Uh, but Oswald Building Services... That was 2018, so about a year, almost two years before the pandemic hit. It's crazy how everything has to get relative to when 2020 (laughs) to 2022 was. But um, I was actually at a dealership uh, waiting for my car to get serviced. And I noticed... um, a van in the parking lot that said easy peasy cleaning and the peasy name in this area, I knew. So I thought it was odd that, that, that vehicle was there. So one of the, there was a girl who was working there cleaning. And I said, excuse me, is that your vehicle out there? And she said, no, it's, it's my boss's. She owns a company before I could say anything. She just ran off and went and got this, this girl we turned out to be Sam uh Sam Jackson. Well, I knew the the peasy name from growing up, but also because there was a woman Jerry Peasy who was one of my father's first manager hires when we were little kids and uh I'd gotten to know Jerry Peasy pretty well over the years. Well, Sam Jackson came over and I said, "Is this your company?" And she says, "Yeah." I said, "Wow, oh, it's just funny because the Peasy name is a name that I knew growing up." And mentioned Jerry Peasy. Well, she just starts welling up, and and lets me know pretty quickly Jerry Peasy was her grandmother, and Jerry had since passed away. But um, so I said, "Wow, well, I'll tell you what, I'm in the commercial cleaning industry. Nothing like the." residential which it is not they're completely and utterly opposite very different businesses but i said if you ever want somebody to talk to about business anytime let me know and two days later she called me up to her credit and said if you weren't you know bs and i'd like to take you up on i got some questions so we we would talk about her business for about six months. And I said, there's got to a point where it's, you got two ways you can make money with this business. One, it's going to be a business and you can make money that way, or you keep it a hobby. And, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. There, there, there's a lot of ways to make a lot of money with something as a hobby. But if you're going to do it that way, that's very different than if you're going to try to make it, as a business. And I said, you're kinda at a fork in the road. And I said, you can go either way. And you probably can make good money either way. But depending on which way you wanna go at this point, my advice is gonna change. And she had said she wanted to make it a business. So uh, I said, all right. And started giving her advice and in about six months, a lot of things were changing and for the better. And she really wanted to take it to the next level. And at that point I said, Um, I I think you should, I think you can, but I said at this point, then, um, we'll be talking about more like a partnership and, and shutting this down, closing that EIN out and opening that same business back up, but with a different EIN and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, she, she wanted to do that because she wanted, she liked the idea of it being something she could run someday versus being in the business and I mean as you guys know i mean it's 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 not for the faint of heart and that's not to 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 you know make a bigger deal than it is but if you're going to build something on your own the ugly side of it is almost everything else in your life gets sacrificed during that time in one way shape or form and i'm not saying that it's not worth it, but there is a price to pay if you want to do whatever it takes to make a business successful. And one of the realities of that is you're going to sacrifice family, you're going to sacrifice friends, you're going to sacrifice personal enjoyment. I mean, first 10 years of Oswald, I worked on Christmas Day, eight of the ten, and that was not like a big deal. Like that's just the way it is. I worked seven days a week, not because I worked harder than anybody else, but there's nobody else to do the stuff that had to get done. So I explained to her, you'll make it. i'm I was confident that that her work ethic and everything else, her business would make it. But I said, at the time she was, I shouldn't even say, she was. she's young. Sam's, Sam's a lot younger than me, I don't wanna say her age, but um, put it this way, she's young enough that people like me in my f- 50s, her age group still looks at us as old people. So I said, you're gonna be my age though, if you do it on your own till you can get a break. I said, if we did something more of a partnership, I think we could get you we'll get you where you're going to go a lot faster because you're if you're willing um a lot of the mistakes that I made we can shorten that runway um so that's how that started i wasn't really looking for it but then 2020 hit and i realized um there's a huge shift from people congregating in buildings for work to now everybody's migrating to their homes to work. And we really had to start getting ramped up on the residential side to respond to that because all of a sudden now everybody was home. Everybody's doing projects on their house and all this other kind of stuff. And the the need or increased request for home cleaning just skyrocketed. I mean, she easy peasy continues to grow easy peasy in the long run will be bigger than any other commercial businesses. I have no doubt about that, but that's also the residential clean industry is what the commercial clean industry was in the seventies. And that's what it is now. It's, it's very fragmented. Um, It's dominated by the franchise world. Um, And it's, dominated by what we call the independence, where it's the one person cleans three houses and that's all they do. Well, on the independent side, when somebody has somebody like that cleaning their house and they lose them, they have nowhere to turn to find a replacement. They usually had that person because they trusted them first, not because they cared how well they cleaned or not. They just were they trusted somebody else being in their house. Well, now people are starting to say, well, I wanna care about if they clean well or not. And if they don't clean well, I wanna be able to communicate with them the way I do at work. You don't get that with an independent. And with the franchises, they can't have the local service level that a small privately held company can traditionally. Um, so I, I say it's like the commercial industry was in the 70s because there was nobody treating commercial like a business back then. Just like residential now, nobody was looking at it like, well, we could treat this like a real serious business and treat the clients like that and make them feel like it's the same as they're talking to their coworkers at work when talking to are house clean. And that's that's been the case. And I think that's going to continue to be like that.
1: How has that process been of developing a business with a partner with Sam versus when you were?
0: Very different for sure. Um, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend. I don't recommend being partners in business. To be honest with you, I, my experience has been, and I've got a lot of friends in business, um, who own their own businesses. I should say, and for the most part, my experience has been no partnerships end well. They all ultimately end not amicably. So. Because of that, and there's a million reasons why that is, but um, because of that, with the clean agency and with Blaze and with Easy Peasy, I've used the law firm for doing the partnership agreements. And we always start with creating the management agreements and everything. Starting point is, this is going to blow up. So if we say that this is going to fail as our starting point, let's work backwards from that to put things in place that takes that into consideration now. Because what happens in the partnerships and usually the partners are not on even footing at the time. They, they bring different um, strengths to the situation. That's partly why they became attracted to each other. But at the same time, it's there's things that you do well and the other doesn't, those turn into resentments down the road when the business is starting to gain traction. So we write partnership agreements that takes into consideration what's gonna create a resentment down the road. So let's try to play that out now and write it into the agreement. That model has worked for me, but it's not rooted in anything in business. That's just personal. Um, The lawyers and the accountants for me were always not in favor of it. Cause they said, Lou, you're, you're giving up leverage and controlling these things. And the other side doesn't even know that. And I said, well, that's number one, that's my whole point. Five years from now, when they say, oh, if I just would have waited, I could have done this without Lou and now I wouldn't have had to have been partner with him and stuff. They're going to be able to see that in the partnership agreements that, that I was thinking about that in the beginning. So no, ideally the goal with that is to not create the inevitable resentments that are created by partners because they have different strengths and different weaknesses. Um, Also, In the partnerships, I try to keep the money. We keep reinvesting the money back into the business initially so that there's positive cash flow. But then also through Glenn's help and First Resource Bank's help, we establish lines of credit for the businesses very early on. So they're automatically getting introduced to that, going back to what we were talking earlier, using banks' money and how to tap into a line of credit and then pay it back after that payroll run that week and stuff like that. Um, it's just different when, you know, Oswald, I was 10 years by myself. I didn't have to care what somebody else thought. And you guys, I'm sure experience it. It's your baby. When you have a partner and somebody else is telling you something about your, it's like somebody saying your baby's ugly or your baby's dumb or your baby's fat or your baby's not attractive. That's what it's like for, for a partner when the other one is trying to say to them, no, I don't think we should do it that way. That's that's not the way to go. So that aspect of having to consider somebody else's perspective in your business is very different.
2: So, are you saying you build in an an exit strategy and into that?
0: We do not. Which is it's a good question because that's one of the first things that um, a good lawyer will ask you, and and most partnerships especially the ones that my I allow friends in the financial world and businesses and that's the first thing to they do they're they're starting with what's the exit strategy and any any business school class that's worth anything will tell you the day you start a business you should have the exit strategy in place that's not me so again I I understand and realize that is the way to do it without question. And I wish I had that mindset. I truly do because it, it's it's the right way to do it. It's, it's the better way to do it without question. But since I've gotten a little older, I'm a little bit more comfortable in my shortcomings. I'm a little bit more comfortable with knowing that I may want it to be that way, but I'm not wired to stay committed to follow through with it the way it is. So to answer your question, no, I don't set it up with an exit strategy, but try to set it up with terms that um, lay the groundwork so that if the company five years later is meaningful. when I say meaningful, it's that there would be... um, a transactional event that would incur money, significant money to somebody, that the management agreement doesn't have to be blown up and started from scratch to create the exit strategy at that point. it's it's kind of has the foundation for it so we can revisit it and say, okay, when we got together, we didn't know if anything was gonna happen. You had no money to put into the business. I put in significant capital, but we we divvied up the equity of it evenly. And you don't have to make up for that. But now that the business is worth something, we already have something in place that the lawyers can just build on to create the exit strategy. So it's the exit strategy is not created in the beginning without question, but it's created in such a way that it's ready to have that amended to the agreement years down the road without having to recreate everything
1: okay yeah so um where does the cleaning agency and blaze fit into the whole scheme of things
0: clean agency basically is is a hedge against which I think is occurring and seeing occurring which is a lot of the companies that were five days a week and trying to save money we're going to say I want to go down to one or two nights a week of cleaning Oswald can't read reshape its overhead to be structured to service companies five days a week. And then if somebody just says, I just want once or twice, we're not in a position to be able to do that. I also had tried this in a different way years ago and we built up a lot of business, but we weren't able to manage it. That's why I became convinced you can't have the same overhead to run something five days a week versus once or twice a week. Um, so that's where that came from. And because of COVID, when everybody went home, so to speak, and there was no cleaning to be done, we're seeing some of this hybrid where people were coming in and they and they've been coming in now for a year and they say, Well, we've been taking care of it ourselves because there's only one or two people coming in a couple of days a week. Well, now they have those same people spending more time clean working when they're there and they're like, Dude, I'm not gonna clean when I come in, but we don't need it much. So we saw some emerging, what I would call like, emerging very narrow markets, which were people who work in office that never cleaned or cleaned it themselves, now want it to be clean, but they only need it once a week. Or somebody that was five days a week, they don't need it that much. They only need it once or twice. So that's that's the mission of the clean agency is to to get that market share.
1: still within union type of jobs? No.
0: Nope, those are those are all and right now the cleaning agency only operates in Chester County. Uh Blaze management services originated out of the fact that um Marie Barry and Tom Aiken, who were the two partners in Blaze. Marie handles uh sales and marketing and Tom handles everything administrative. When I was, I mean, there there was no roadmap or book. I I wish I was more sophisticated to have created what I'm trying to do here. But when I started doing stuff with Easy Peasy, I put Marie and Tom on the books for Easy Peasy. So Marie and Tom were on the books for Easy Peasy. Marie and Tom were on the books for Oswald. Then we did Clean Agency and all. So I had those guys with multiple W-2s. The thought became, why can't we create one overhead and let the different companies share that overhead? And that would help in effect all the companies keep a lower overhead. In addition to easy peasy, clean agency, you got talented people that you couldn't have afforded to pay if you were just trying to start off, you would be burning so much cash paying them. So Blaze Management Services pays a monthly fee or, or gets paid a monthly fee by Oswald, by the Clean Agency, uh, by Easy Peasy, and some other groups right now that it's not, we haven't going all the way down the road to creating ownership interest there yet. Um, so it allows those companies to have that talent working 100% for them without having to pay those types of salaries. And so far, it's it's been a good way to keep uh, our overhead down. What,
1: what's the ownership structure of Blaze if there's all these different partners in the piece? So it's
0: a good question. So one it. of the things I'd said to Marie and, and Tom when I was pitching this to them was that, um, listen, guys. Another aspect of business is you can run a business to be as profitable as you can. You can run it to make it as attractive balance statement to a bank because you want to use banks to it. You can run it to have as little tax exposure as possible. So when they were working on the different companies, their bonuses would be based out of the profit. And I said, well, not running all the companies so that that would be the the. Um, we're not going to have the most cash flow from profit because we may be reinvesting in that business because we're trying to build it. And I didn't want them to feel like, so I'm killing myself. You own another business that I'm killing myself for and there's no payoff for it. So Blaze gets paid based on its clients. Gross sales. Doesn't matter. I mean, ultimately obviously matters you want your clients to be profitable because if they're not in the long run they're going to go out of business but it didn't matter it doesn't matter what the profit margin is going to be of its clients its its revenue is generated off of top line sales so blaze is motivated for its clients to have as much top line sales as possible um and then blaze needs to operate itself profitably in order, since they're now partners. And when you're a partner in business or you have an ownership stake in a business, all of a sudden you read the P&L very differently, you read the balance statement very differently. So it was not also a way for them to feel like they have direct control. And when they want to make decisions, like as silly as it sounds, we need new computers, we need new phones, or I want a new car, this and that. Okay, We're, the business can fund it. But do you want to do that or do you want to run it as lean as you can so there's more of a distribution at the end of the year? So it, it makes you change your perspective about how you're going to spend money when you when it's, in theory, your money. And it's been successful so far, and it makes them feel like, okay, they're not – they can't – any effort they put in, if there's profit there, they'll be rewarded for it.
1: So yeah, it kind of gives them a nice motivation to – ensure the profitability of
0: sure things.
1: okay yeah so coming to the end of the conversation here um one, see do you have any tips in general for people who are developing a business or trying to fix one that's failing anything that you think has been just stand out
0: i can only really speak to the service industry um and right now it's 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 the service industry is in such an upheaval for many different reasons. Um, but the, the labor market, which traditionally was 15 to $20 an hour for us was, um, it's completely blown up now. And there's a lot of reasons for why that is, but I'm sure you guys have seen it when you go out to the movies or restaurants or anything right now, there's a lot less service personnel out there. Um you know, I wish I wish I was more of inspirational. I, I would just say, it's cliche. You got to stay true to yourself. Figure out what you're willing to commit to. And I, you know, I can compare a little bit to having conversations with my son. who I think I mentioned you guys just finished his sophomore year of college. I truly don't care what you study. I really don't. Um He's going to be measured by his effort. That's how, you know, I said, you got to pick. He's a finance major. And I think in this day and age, all the males and stuff that he's around in the schools he was at is very A-personality driven. And it's finance, finance, finance. You're going to go out and make a in dollars and all that kind of stuff. The problem, many problems with that, but one of the problems is, explain to him. just find something that you're going to be willing to do when you don't want to do it because no matter what ultimately what you're studying what you're if you're starting your own business if you don't think that don't do it because you think you're going to love it and you think that it's going to allow you to not have to work for other people and all that kind of stuff because as you guys see you work when you have your own business you work for everybody else when you work for a company you only have a few bosses but if you have your own business you're working for everybody you're not going to get more free time you're not going to have more disposable income or any of that stuff. Find whatever it is that you're doing that you're you're willing to do it when everything is negative because then you're going to be willing to grind it out. If you don't feel that way when things go negative, you won't do the things that you need to do to get through that rough patch. You're not going to you're not going to sacrifice the time with your family because you're going to say it's not worth it. I, I did this because I wanted to have more time with my kids, not less time. I wanted to have more time with my spouse, not less time. I wanted to be able to take care of my parents. Like All of those things you thought there would be a good reason to go into business, you realize are meaningless. Those variables aren't part of the equation. What are you willing to stay committed to? And maybe the best advice is, too, with some of that stuff is, it's all right to to quit it. Sometimes you start stuff, and I've been there. I've had a lot of, it's not going to work. And you can't take it personally. And you don't have to read into it more than that. It's not going to work. Stop wasting time on it. Put your put your time and energy into something else that you think will play out. Um. You know, you got to surround yourself with people smarter than you. And even if you're a pretty smart person, <laughs> take advice from other people so you can make informed decisions, but do not surrender making the decision to somebody else because they're not going to live with it. You got to live with the results of that decision. Um, I'm an overthinker. I think most people in business are overthinkers. It doesn't help. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> but... um. If you can train yourself to get to a point to say, I'm going to make this decision and then move on because you got a million decisions to make all the time. So if you're spending your time overthinking stuff, that means you're not getting to the next decision you have to make in the next decision, the next decision. I'd rather make decisions and be wrong than not make the decision that that's, that's more of a recipe for disaster.
1: I think that's a good point. Um, do you guys have anything coming up in the future or any announcements you guys want to talk about for any of the businesses?
0: No, uh, no announcements uh, that I can think of. I, um, You know, it's it's been frustrating, to be honest with you, in our industry. Oswald Building Services is definitely mama, and that's the biggest of the businesses, and it's directly tied to the commercial real estate market. That's the worst market to be tied to right now. So... I've actually just tried to get myself to get comfortable accepting that. There's no waiting for that to go back to the way things are. There's no going to be, oh, I can't wait till it gets back to the normal or whatever. So at my age, I was not wanting to try to be as adaptive as I have to be with that business. Um, But it's just the reality. Um, The The future for Easy Peasy, one of the things that's going to be interesting is that the generation now doesn't want home ownership. The the, the multi-family environment, the apartment complexes with a lot of amenities, it's just exploded. And in this area, Chester County has exploded more than anywhere else in Pennsylvania. So we are currently working on... Putting together, we haven't gotten too far down there, putting together a plan for that. I think that the the apartment client potentially will be bigger than the, than the single-family home client for our residential business. And then I think that down the road from that, there's a model there that could treat the apartment buildings the way the commercial industry grew, which would be, say you got the Hankin Group, one of the amenities, everybody wants amenities, amenities, amenities. One of the amenities could be your rents 2500 a month or 2750 And you get the apartment gets cleaned twice a week, twice a month, biweekly and stuff like that. And it would go through the management of the place. And that would be just an amenity, just like the gym or the pool or anything else like that. So I think it's an exciting place to be from that standpoint that there's so much growth out there. The commercial stuff, though, is just going to be very very bumpy and vital for the next couple of years.
1: Okay. Well, Lou, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure hearing all your business stories.
0: Thanks guys. I appreciate your time and uh, excited for you guys. It's pretty exciting, all the stuff you guys got going on.
1: Stories from the top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Scura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more, get in touch, Visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.